Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Da-da-da. Da-da-da. You got there yet? No. Running up the steps in Philadelphia, punching meat. Rocky, it was the Rocky theme music. Yeah. I thought it was appropriate after your evisceration of Rishi Sunak in Parliament. Oh. Do you think we should play a bit of it? Yeah, because I'd love to hear it. I saw that you were trending on Twitter, and sometimes when that happens, I think, oh, no, I don't want to look. What's he done now? Yes, yeah, yeah. And then I looked, and you you were being hailed for your performance in the Commons. Yeah. There was a two-minute video, and I didn't watch the whole two minutes, but what I saw was very good. (laughs) Now, sometimes you can do speeches in the House of Commons which do make a point really more about the social emergency we face than anything else. But just bringing it to the personal level, if you go into the House of Commons with it in mind that you're going to go up and say something like that, how confident are you that it's going to land? If you're just rude, it doesn't get you anywhere. But I was trying to make an argument about the failure of Sunak to respond to anything like the scale that was necessary and in the way that was necessary to the crisis that we're facing. And so because it had a sort of a real argument in it, and then, okay, some direct criticism of him, if I'm frank with you, I felt reasonably confident about it. You never know how these things are going to go. I think I, I, in part, inspired that speech, or at least a section of it. I mean, let's 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 just let Alice into a secret. You sort of wrote most of it. Yes, certainly spell-checked it. I, I just sort of read out the words. Like Elton John and Bernie Taupin. Yeah. But w- when you said a U-turn is lumbering slowly over the hill, yeah. last week on the podcast you said exactly the same thing about a punchline to one of my attempts at humour. Really? Yes. So I really think I should take credit for that. You should. You definitely should. When you eviscerate someone like that, what is it like the next time you're in the lift with them? I've never really been in a lift with Rishi Sunak. I, I, mean, I must have exchanged a few pleasantries with him or the case of last week unpleasantries but uh but you must have had a situation where you have I think savage... it's more worked the other way actually so what is that like then oh, i don't know when i would have to talk to cameron sort of just park the kind of sweep it under the carpet slightly um, that's got to be one lumpy carpet though hasn't it yeah i just think because I can bear grudges for years over the slightest of things. A, a journalist in Heat magazine once described me as laddish, and I still harbour revenge fantasies. I don't know how you get over it. I don't know, really. Repress? Is that the answer? No. Squash it down? Yeah, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, it's a good question. And then afterwards, are you, are you like pumped with adrenaline? Um, well, I sort of felt it had gone well. And I had nice comments from people. Were they high-fiving you? No, I think you sort of got to be sober about these things. What is it? Kipling, triumph and disaster and treat both the same? I always felt that about PMQs, although maybe I had more disasters than triumphs. 
I think it's less true of these kind of speeches, but the, in PMQs, the gap between triumph and disaster is incredibly narrow. So I remember the one I did well, what, the one I did well, <laughs> uh, when Cameron called me a student politician and I said, at least I wasn't throwing around bread rolls and wrecking restaurants. And you know, that one line, like, uh, won the thing for me. But if I hadn't had that line, it would have won for him. You know, it's sort of it, Tony Blair once said to me, it's the joust that really matters at PMQs. You think it's the argument and the argument obviously does matter. But the joust is what gets your side or the other side going. And I think it sort of is true. What a healthy thing for democracy. It's not very good about PMQs, is it really? Anyway, if I was you, I would be getting my what they call you parliamentary secretaries, private parliamentary secretaries. I'd have them waiting outside the chamber. I'd text them and say, I want you to hoist me. I want you to hold me aloft. Definitely not. I'm not. No, no spiking the football. Did you think about getting an open top bus? No, stop it. Did you go to a disco to celebrate? No, no, I didn't do any of those things. We're moving on. We're, we're definitely moving on. Now we have news. Do we? We are. We are. Returning to the stage. We are. I know that you're particularly excited about this because you get a big kick. I get a big kick out of you. Out of um, a live audience. Interaction. You love a bit of interaction, don't you? It's at King's Place yes. in London. Uh, it'll be fun. I'm really looking forward to it. It's Sunday, July 17th. Whoop, whoop. It's at three o'clock and it's going to be great. And I think it's going to be raining that day. So you'd be much better off inside. Absolutely. I think, I think we're sort of slightly just like, don't think of an elephant. We're sort of, we're kind of putting into people's mind that it's going to be incredibly sunny and they shouldn't <laughs> come, actually. You know what I mean? It's almost convincing me not to come. Okay, okay, what about this? It's going to be oppressively hot yes. and you'll want to be indoors yes. away from that. Just for a It'll be of one of those two things, raining or oppressively hot. Yes, but we're really excited. We're really and- excited. And we're gonna we're gonna do a reveal of our guests nearer the time, aren't we? That's right. Yeah. Once we've given it some thought, exactly. We'll see whether we can get Obama, not Michelle or Barack, no, or either of the daughters, yeah. Someone who's changed the name by Deepol, yeah, exactly, for attention, exactly. <laughs> That's what we're gonna give them. You never. So know. yeah, please join us. And if you uh, if you look on the King's Place website, you'll be able to get tickets from there. So should we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes. This week we're talking about health inequalities. For a long time now, it's been accepted that the social and economic conditions you live in determine how long you live and how good your health will be. And this became even more obvious during the pandemic, which really exposed and amplified existing inequalities. Now we're going through one of the toughest cost of living crises we've seen. And this will undoubtedly impact people's health, not only now, but way into the future. To find out more about this difficult issue, we will be in conversation with the leading voice on this. We're incredibly lucky to have him. It's Professor Sir Michael Marmot, who wrote the landmark Marmot Review on Health Inequalities back in 2010. We are also going to be talking to Christina Gray, who is Director for Communities and Public Health in Bristol, and hearing what a better future might look like on the link between health and economics from Chris Thomas from the Institute for Public Policy Research. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is that I did the something at the British Library called the 5 by 15 talks. And that means basically five people giving 15-minute talks. I was doing a talk about my book. And so thank you to the British Library for uh, organising that. But the um, thing I wanted to give a shout-out to is I was signing some books afterwards. And I was approached by two politics A-level students, who I believe were called Lara and Phoebe, And I just want to give a shout out to Lara, Phoebe and Katie, as it turns out, because they have their own podcast and it is called Tudor Talk Time about uh, Tudor women. 
That's a great idea. I'm just looking through it. Margaret Beaufort, the mother of the Tudor dynasty, Elizabeth Woodville, the White Queen, Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves. They've got an International Women's Day special. Catherine Howard, Catherine Parr, Elizabeth Barton, the nun of Kent, Margaret Pohl, Joanna the Mad. Wow. Do you know Joanna the Mad? Not personally. No, do I. So I'd like to hear Joanna the Mad and Lady Rochford. Isn't that impressive? Yeah, it's quite something. Tudor talk time. Anyway, so that's my shout out. What's your reason to be cheerful? At the risk of sounding like a saddo, by the time this episode drops, there will only be five days to go until the new Obi-Wan Kenobi series on Disney+. Plus. Say more. When I was a kid, I was a massive Star Wars fan. Yeah. And I'm not one of those people who, for example, enjoys cosplay. What do you mean you don't enjoy cosplay? Sorry, you say that again? Why do you think it's strange to not enjoy cosplay? They're a band, yes, cosplay. <laughs> cosplay is when you dress up as characters from literature or film and maybe reenact scenes, maybe... I've heard your... the word, although I've always been slightly confused about what it meant. I bet there were people who did um, 2010 to 2015 Shadow Cabinet cosplay. Really? What does that mean? People dressing up as you, Yvette Cooper. Oh, I see. Ed Balls. I bet, actually, there's two Ed's, um, what they call slash fiction out there. Obviously, you like that way over my head, matey. Like erotic fiction about you and Oh, okay, Ed let's Balls. move on. Right, let's move on. Okay, get back to your Obi-Wan Kenobi thing. Any, anyway, I'm, I'm very excited. It's you and McGregor. It's like a mini-series. Ah, the, right. the stuff they put out on Disney+, Plus, like The Mandalorian, has been brilliant, so I'm really excited by it. Correct? That's E.T. Oh, yes, that's E.T., sorry. Yes. <laughs> Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We are incredibly lucky to have some time now with Professor Sir Michael Marmot, who has devoted much of his life's work to health inequalities. He's probably the UK's preeminent expert on the subject. Michael, hello. Hello. To, to spell out the idea of health inequalities, the less advantaged your background the lower your life expectancy, and, and even more pertinently, the lower your healthy life expectancy. Could you give us some more detail on that and, and who in society is typically affected? If you classify people by where they live and classify where they live by the level of deprivation, what you see is a social gradient in life expectancy. In other words, the people at the top, the least deprived area, have the longest life expectancy, and then it's progressive. The greater the deprivation, the shorter the life expectancy, all the way from top to bottom. And then if we did it for healthy life expectancy, the gradient is much steeper. Not only do you have fewer years of life, you have more of those years spent in unhealthy life. And what does that look like at the sharpest end of it in terms of difference in years? Well, to give you one example, think about the Royal London Borough of Kensington and Chelsea. The area around Grenfell before the fire had life expectancy 16 years shorter than the rich part of the same London borough. You could walk from the rich bit of the borough to the poor bit of the borough in about 40 minutes and we've covered a 16-year gap in life expectancy. And, and it, it can seem like this would be a paradox in a, in a country where healthcare is free to all at point of use. But this is about social circumstances beyond what we would typically 
think of as health and health policy? The opening line of my book, The Health Gap, was why treat people and send them back to the conditions that made them sick. But it's not lack of health care that makes us sick in the first place. This is due to what I call the social determinants of health, the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work and age. They're the drivers of health inequalities. The healthcare system is the response once people get ill. And could you go into some detail on what those social determinants are? The review I did in 2010, known as the Marmot Review, commissioned by Gordon Brown, we identified six domains which summarised the causes and pointed to where action was needed. And the six were give every child the best start in life, early child development. Number two, education and lifelong learning. Number three, employment and working conditions. Number four, this is really radical for the fifth richest country on the planet. Everybody should have at least the minimum income necessary for a healthy life. Number five, healthy and sustainable places in which to live and work. So it includes housing, neighborhoods and the like. And number six, what I call taking a social determinants approach to prevention. So it's not just saying, you know, eat healthily, don't smoke, don't drink, be good chaps, run around the block and so on. It's actually looking at the social conditions that make healthier or unhealthier behaviors more likely. The report that you referred to in 2010, the Marmot report, it was a, this this landmark report. You then followed it up a, a decade later with a 10 years on report in 2020. Um, can you tell us about some of the ideas and solutions that you proposed and what you found when you went back to see how the government had, uh, had been uh, progressing with it? Well, the first thing we found was what had happened to health. And Life expectancy, which had been improving about one year every four years for a century. In 2010, that rate of increase slowed dramatically and just about ground to a halt. Second, health inequalities increased. That social gradient, classifying people by where they live, social gradient got steeper. And thirdly, really chillingly, life expectancy for people in the poorest areas outside London actually went down. Wow. This was really terrible. Were the proposals you made originally, were they enacted? Were they tried half-heartedly? Were they tried and, and did they fail? By and large, the proposals we made for how government should respond were not just ignored, they went in the opposite direction. So take early childhood reduce child poverty and provide services. Um, Child poverty went up and Sure Start Children's Centres closed across the country. So all the good things you could do, um, they went in the wrong direction. Second, education. The funding per pupil in education went down by 8% over the decade. And I thought, what better thing is there to do with government money than invest in education of children. The changes that the Chancellor made to the tax and benefits system 
from 2010 on. If you look at families with children, if you were in the poorest 10% of household income, your income would have gone down by 20% as a result of changes the Chancellor made to the tax and benefits system. The richer you were, the less the reduction in income. So the Chancellor's policies were to make poor people poorer. And he did it pretty well in a very neatly progressive, well, regressive way. The poorer you were, the poorer he made you. On the the social determinants approach to prevention, we had figures from the Food Foundation that if you were in the bottom 10% of household income, for you to follow the healthy eating advice, you would have to spend 74% of your income on food. So please, if you're an MP, please don't tell poor people that they're ignorant and they don't know how to cook. The problem is not ignorance. The problem is poverty. The pandemic has has really laid bare the way that health doesn't affect everyone in our society equally. And, And do you think that the horrendous experience of the past two and a half years could prove to be a catalyst for positive change? I said at the beginning of the pandemic that it would expose and amplify the underlying inequalities in society. And our Office for National Statistics has been absolutely brilliant in uh, showing us the data. I mean, they've really done a brilliant job. And what is made very clear is that the mortality from COVID-19 follows the same social gradient that I described for life expectancy. One thing we haven't talked about is people from ethnically diverse backgrounds who we know are disproportionately affected in terms of deaths from the pandemic. I take it that your graph is replicated when looked at through that lens. Yeah, in my 10 years on report, which we published just before the pandemic crashed upon us, we lamented the fact that we nationally don't have very good data for ethnic minorities. So we couldn't do a very systematic job. Uh, I hope that that defect in data is being corrected. But then ONS published the data on COVID, and COVID mortality was up to four times as high in Bangladeshi, Black Caribbean, Black African, Pakistani and Indian origin people in Britain. Much of that excess could be attributed to geography, where people live, which is also related to deprivation, and other socioeconomic characteristics. Much of it, but not all of it. So, in other words, there are two kinds of questions. One is, why are people from these different ethnic groups more likely to be in deprived circumstances? What is it about the way we've organized society that makes that the case? And secondly, why is there an excess risk over and above the socioeconomic characteristics? And in the US, the idea of intersectionality arose. And I think it's relevant to Britain too, the idea that if you're in a lower socioeconomic group, you're disadvantaged and that'll be bad for your health. If you're in a low socioeconomic group and an ethnic minority and a woman, that'll be especially bad for your health. 
We've added to our six recommendations a seventh to deal with structural racism, discrimination and its consequences. You mentioned the uh, cost of living crisis. You, you wrote a piece for The Guardian recently, and, and your take is that things are about to be potentially dramatically exacerbated. Yeah, I, I gave real emphasis to the idea of living a dignified life. And I say one way to threaten people's dignity is take away the means to meet the basic needs of life. And it's a threat to dignity to have resort to food banks. It's a threat to dignity to have to wear two overcoats indoors to stay warm, to appeal to your landlord to give you relief from paying the rent, to cancel a children's birthday party because of cost. And with the cost of living crisis, those indignities are likely to get much worse and much more widespread, and they will damage health and well-being. Something I'm curious about is that you've run the numbers, you've looked into the data, and you've seen this pattern, this, this graph that is replicated in so many different situations and yet you know your your recommendations go unacknowledged or not acted on how do you stay optimistic in all this Um, Coventry didn't do what they did to make me happy but it did make me happy in 2010 after my Marmot review report Coventry declared themselves a Marmot city they said we are going to take your report your six domains of recommendations, and make them central to our planning for the city. We started work with Greater Manchester. This month, we're going to publish a report of our work with Cheshire and Merseyside. We've been working with Lancashire and Cumbria. Gwent wants to be the first Marmot region in Wales. Waltham Forest, we're working with London on structural racism. So, All around the country, local areas are saying, we want to do it. We really want to make a difference to the quality of people's lives, which will show up in better health and narrower health inequalities. If you ask me, do I have a reason to be cheerful? I have an evidence-based reason to be cheerful, which is this real enthusiasm at local government level all around the country. And my hope, this is not a reason, but it's a hope. My hope is if we get enough local areas acting, eventually national government will have to follow. The rest of the country will all be going in a particular direction. They'll run round the front of the pack and pretend they'd been leading it from the beginning. Michael Marmot, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. To follow on from that conversation with Michael Marmot, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Christina Gray, who is Director of Communities and Public Health in Bristol. Christina, let's start maybe, if you would, by you telling us how you got into this whole area of public health. Of course. Very early on, I was involved with homelessness, actually with an organisation called Cyrenians that, that people may remember. I was a volunteer with the Cyrenians. I worked with street homeless. And in those days, as a volunteer, you lived with 
the clients and worked alongside the the clients and the people living in the house to do the cooking, the cleaning. We had to raise the money, very small committees that supported them. I also um, spent some time volunteering in in Northern Ireland at the height of the, the troubles in those days. And that exposed me to both the challenges of conflicts and the opportunities that happen when you get people together. So how very quickly, when we become groups, tribes, if you like, things solidify. So th- those two things probably took me in, th- in, this, in this direction, initially into social work, actually, but it was in understanding then the determinants of social outcomes. People will know Bristol as a great city, maybe quite a prosperous city. But talk to us about health inequality in Bristol. So we are one of the richest cities in Europe, but we have, along with all other cities, huge inequalities, disparities between wealth and poverty. And those are long-standing. They're visible geographically, so we can map poverty and health inequality around the city. And that um, hasn't shifted hugely in probably about 20 years. What, what has happened in those 20 years is that generally quality of life, health and life expectancy for everybody has got better. But what we are challenged with is the gap. So our healthy life expectancy gap at birth is around 20 years. We currently have a one city approach. So we've always had partnerships, civic, community um, and public partnerships of, of varying sorts to come together and to address issues. Talk to us about the Lawrence Western estate. Ah, what's been going on there? Yes. Now, there you should get them on. I really should not speak for them. Ambition Lawrence Western, they are just wonderful. So this is community mobilization. Uh, it's a community-led group. They are involved in planning and they are, they are going to be involved in a, a housing development which will have uh, major impacts for the estate and ensuring that the wealth and the benefits come back to local people. And they've also successfully um, about to build the first ever, I think, community-owned wind turbine. That's going to be a massive um, wind turbine which will contribute to the grid, but the benefits, the wealth benefits, will go back to the local community. It's certainly an inspiring story. I'm, I'm, Jeff thought I might have already visited, um, but I haven't. But I'm, I'm now going to definitely visit. Everybody should go. It's, 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 it's wonderful. It's, it's really inspiring, and and it's just to say that that the people leading that work, Mark Pepper and and the others in his group, that this isn't a flash in the in the pan. Mark was born, lived in Lawrence Weston and has been involved and leading community work, as have the others in his group, for years. So what's so interesting about what you're saying is, uh, in the conversation we had with Michael, I came away with this idea that wealth inequality is the the thing 
really. But it, it sounds like your experience in Bristol shows you that an emphasis on a, a kind of social cohesion is maybe not just as important, but, but really key to closing these health disparities. I, I think Michael's absolutely right. What is the primary driver of inequality? It is the poverty gap. And poverty is physiological and psychological and and absolutely translates into poor life expectancy and poor healthy life expectancy. But we know now that we are we live in systems, interrelated, interconnected systems. So we have to be seeing these things systemically. You know, why is it that some groups are impoverished? It's because they don't have a voice. They don't have a seat at the table. So the community asset building, the the civic piece is about participation. It is about democratic principle. It is about the multiple and different voices. And that has to be very purposeful and and deliberate. So we also have uh, something here called deliberative democracy, which is an approach... We're, we're big fans. Cross- Ed and I are big fans. Big fans. Big so fans. I would see the, the, the social cohesion piece as being really part of that. It has to be long-term. It has to have teeth. And it has to be more than about just communities being given a little bit of project money and um, encouraged to do small things. It needs to be really ambitious and have a stake in the wealth of the city. When you start looking at this subject, it, the, the inequality is stark and it can be a bit depressing. What does your experience in Bristol so far show us about possibility on this, what what is there to feel upbeat about from from Bristol's experience? Bristol is known and likes to call itself a city of hope, and I think hope is so important. It is really important that we lead with hope. As human beings, we have faced over the millennium terrible, terrible challenges, and what human beings have the capacity to do is when things are at their worst to dig of our deepest and to reach out and be of our best. We're not out of COVID yet, make no mistake. But what has been so moving is to be part of a city which has absolutely mobilised itself from grassroots community action, from people looking in on their neighbours, from the massive volunteer support to businesses. You know, our businesses were providing meals for for our NHS colleagues. And I think you just can't, you can't fail to be moved and inspired by that. And I think that's why, you know, we've come out of COVID, everybody's exhausted. The last thing we want to be looking at is more crisis. And actually, we are looking at multiple crises. We are looking at the cost of living crisis. We are looking at the climate emergency, and we're looking at global instability. And we have got to take that sense of hope, that sense of resilience, and look that in the eye. And if we do that, we will find a way through because as human beings, we are endlessly um, ingenious, but it's not one person. It's not one thing. It's got to be the best of all of us. And that means also all of the talent that we're not using because it's excluded. 
So if, you, if we want to tackle homelessness, the people who know most about homelessness are the people who are homeless, and they are the most excluded. They are the most displaced of all. So it has to be collective, community, civic, partnership. Uh, Christina Gray, you've been uh, brilliant. Thank you so much for talking about your personal experience, but also what you're doing in Bristol. It's been great to have you on. Thank you very much. To round off this uh, conversation, with us now is Chris Thomas from the IPPR, which last month launched its Commission on Health and Prosperity, and that explores the relationship between health and the economy. Hello, Chris. Hi, Jeff. Good to be here. Yeah, good to have you. Um, Let's start with exactly why you've set up this commission. Now, in, in the launch report, you say that health is at the heart of a just society and an equal economy. Can you... Can you just talk to us a little bit more about the idea of the relationship between health and prosperity? What we've seen over the last few decades, I suppose, is the kind of approach to health that that we think doesn't work very well. And it was probably at the core really behind some of the UK's poor outcomes during the COVID-19 pandemic is that it's often seen as a quite inconvenient budget line. So it's in a spreadsheet, probably in a, in a treasury Excel document somewhere. Um, and the kind of uh, approach has been, let's get this number, this investment down as low as possible. And that's almost become synonymous with sustainability. We can only have, for example, a good NHS if we can get the cost that goes into it so low that we can cope with an aging population. What we think the pandemic has shown is that doesn't really work. In fact, if we only have a very threadbare approach to health, then things can go disastrously wrong. And actually, a better approach is to see health not as something that needs to be suppressed, but as something that can be a keystone in a fairer society and a stronger economy. And I think quite tangible example of this, which is the interaction between health and the labour market at the moment in the UK. So if we look at just the rise in long-term illness from the last two years, so just the increase in those with a long-term health condition during the pandemic period, we see that hundreds of thousands aren't in the labour market that could have been. And that's having a tangible impact on things like productivity, on things like growth, at a time that we have a very insecure economy anyway. So our contention is let's put health at the heart of our economic strategy, but also, of course, our social justice strategy. This is a commission really about saying, one, what's the case for having the best possible health? And two, what's the breadth of the definition of health and how do we make sure we're doing everything possible to get there? So would that require sort of a, a complete shift in the way you think about where health lies in terms of different government departments and ministries? If we're looking for approaches that seem really promising is where countries have taken a kind of broader definition of what prosperity means and have looked for ways to include health and well-being in that kind of calculation. What we have in the UK kind of perhaps actually if we we levy this more at England because Wales and Scotland are doing some quite interesting things is an approach that's very wedded to kind of output production measures, so GDP. Now, from a health perspective, GDP can be quite problematic. So it can value the things that make us unhealthy. So you can think of uh, kind of ultra-processed food or gambling or things that uh, count towards GDP but that have a health harm. It values those. We disproportionately count the things that result from those activities. So uh, if we fall ill and have a hospital appointment, a GP appointment, if we're prescribed medicines, then those go into GDP as well. So we effectively double count health harms. 
There are other countries that are doing things slightly different. New Zealand have most famously got their, their kind of well-being budget approach, which is really interesting. Yes, we had their finance minister on um, a couple of years ago and talking about the, the well-being budget. And is, is the primary purpose of that in this context to shift the way that both government and the public think about priorities? I think that's right. I think it, it, it addresses a kind of core government failure, doesn't it? Which is that policy can be very short term. And that can be because of the budget cycles that treasury ministries tend to work with. It can be because of the political cycles. And that's bad news for health because health takes quite a long sustained uh, period of commitment to improve. It's not something that kind of really ebbs and flows in the way that other things might. So it needs that sustained commitment. And I think what the wellbeing approach has done has helped provide some infrastructure. And I mean, it's not a silver bullet. There are still other things that are important, but some infrastructure to push government thinking towards that long term and to provide political reward for prioritizing it. So I think, I think that's really key. There are countries like Bhutan that have been using gross national happiness for a lot longer and have seen kind of transformative outcomes in terms of that much broader definition of prosperity during the period that they've used it. So there's quite encouraging signs out there that if we measure and define prosperity in the right way, then we can put in place the long-term policy making to see things like health improve. And, and as our commission will contend, that's also good for the long-term health of the economy. Talk to us about Japan, Chris. Uh, they, they apparently had some of the worst health in the G7 in the 1960s and now have some of the best health outcomes in the world. Is there something to learn from there? Yeah, I think that's right. Over the course of 60 years, there was kind of a transformation in the health of the country. In 2020, the UK finds itself in the kind of 1960s Japan position that we have kind of very, very lagging health outcomes. So we're sixth of seventh in, in the G7. And I think if we were to look at Japan and the kind of things that prove transformational there, we'd probably see two things. We'd probably identify the kind of nutrition equation. So you kind of see this move in, in, in the last 60 years to a very ultra processed food, very high saturated fat diet in nations like the UK, the US, other high income English speaking countries that hasn't been paralleled in Japan. The other thing that you see in Japan is much higher levels of, of social equality, which is a really key foundation for good health and for equal health that we haven't seen in the UK to anything like the same degree. Should the UK match Japan's improvement? Should we go through the same trajectory? We'd see health improve, obviously, so the kind of national health improve. We'd see our inequalities narrow. But what's really interesting is that the improvements in health would be across all age groups. So it's not just that it's kind of the 80 plus age group that would see big kind of improvements in health. Actually, it's pretty evenly spread amongst all adult age groups. And the thing that means is the economic impacts are very large. So a 1.2% increase in, in worker productivity, which we've not, we've not achieved for a decade. With, with Japan, was it something that they pursued or was it a byproduct of other changes in the, the society and the way they structured their economy? If we're, if we're thinking about the kind of transformation over, over 50 years, I think it, it, it comes down to a byproduct. But I mean, the kind of things that have been quite conscious are quite interesting, aren't they? So there has been quite a conscious effort in Japan on the things that, that underpin it. So on social cohesion, that's, that's been a big priority in Japanese policy, income equality, and in making sure that, you know, kind of the gap between those that earn the most and those that earn the least is as small as possible. 
what I would say is there's always some caveat is that we should pick and choose what we should learn from Japan. So it's in, it, it's not by any means a, a perfect country. I think it's about taking the things demonstrably that were good and integrating them into a UK policy agenda and working out a way that we can make our policy infrastructure conductive to that. So, so, so Chris, we've heard from Michael about uh, his emphasis on local areas using their own powers in the face of government inertia. And we've heard from Christina about what's happening in Bristol Talk to us about national policy, how important, how crucial this is. I think it's really important. Um, the absolute core is making sure that health is a consideration across policies. If we want better health, then at IPPR, we've looked at kind of the biggest marginal gains, and they come from things like housing, social security, child obesity, things that aren't necessarily purely healthcare. If we want those to happen, then we need ministers and officials to care about health outside of the Department of Health and Social Care. So I think that's why, for me, the kind of biggest steps in national policy making we can take are making sure that the measures are right, so that we've got policy, you know, that isn't just based on GDP, but that is also based on health and well-being. I think we need to consider the relative power of health around the cabinet tables. You've got a prime minister that has obviously some hard levers over colleagues because he can take away their jobs, a chancellor who can set their budgets, but the health secretary has no such power to kind of compel a housing secretary or a, or an education secretary to do the healthy thing to make health their priority. So I think we need to consider whether actually, you know, we have the right balance of power and whether the health secretary has the powers he needs to, to really oversee genuine rises in, in both health overall and, and obviously reductions in inequality as well. I think that's a perfect segue to your last question, Jeff, isn't it? Levers. Well, yes, yes. So, so if uh, in our podcast Utopia, the Jeffocracy, we conscript, we unlimited cons- levers you've got, haven't yes. you, Jeff? We, we we would conscript you. We wouldn't appoint you, but we would conscript you to be uh, health inequality supremo. And supremo will be an official job title in the Jeffocracy. Um, what what would you do on day one with your unlimited levers? I think there's a really nice adoption from New Zealand. So maybe we can we can take that as something quite tangible. Um, so there's always a question about whether, you know, is it happiness? Is it well-being? Well, I, I put forward the case that actually health is a really good thing to put at the heart of, of an economy. Essentially, what the New Zealand well-being budget amounts to is 5% of, of existing government finance, of total government expenditure spent on long-term priorities. Uh, so I take that here. The most important thing is having the infrastructure and the money to regularly target, maybe on an annual basis, the, the right policy levers, the right funding for the long term. So that would be that would be my move. Well, I think that reflects very well on you. I think in the same position, the first thing I would do would be to get business cards printed with Supremo on them. So <laughs> I think you're, you're the right person that's why for the you're, job. That's why you're not getting the job, Jeff. That's right. uh, Chris Thomas, uh, it's been great. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Lovely to be here. So I'm keen to hear what, what you think. I think... What's so interesting about this health inequalities issue is it's a massive, massive injustice. I mean, it's like how long you live. What greater injustice could be there be than that? And I'm very struck knocking on doors um, for elections in some parts of the country versus others. You just get a totally different experience behind these those doors, not just the age to which people live, but it, it's just very striking the extent to which in the conversations you have with people – ill health and good years of life versus not having good years of life is so such a divergent experience so it's so apparent but yet it's not i mean it's talked about obviously but it's not really talked about that much is it i was really struck by how much health really touches 
on everything. And just talking to Chris there, an idea that popped into my head is, you know, we talked about the future commissioner in Wales who's there to make sure that that thinking is applied, sustainability and future generations to every policy and decision made. It almost seems like that should exist in government to make sure that everything passes the health test, yeah. the health inequality yeah. test. So I thought maybe that's an idea. The, the other thing that struck me is I, th- I think this could really be a, a powerful thing to talk to the public about. I don't know that it's that apparent, even though we're all living in towns and, and cities with these inequalities. A wonderful way of getting people to think about what they want to prioritise when they're thinking about what they'd like a government or local government to spend or to implement is by pointing this out to them. I mean, I think you're right. It is an issue about this. that It's almost like the agenda is so broad yes, that it sort of, in a way, becomes quite hard to pin down. Yes. It's like it's the outcome of everything, isn't it? And, and it can look a little bit like, I imagine, to a Conservative voter, that it's a bit of a Trojan horse for introducing a lot of right. left-wing right. or centre-left right. policies. But that's why things like the wellbeing budget, I guess, are so useful for shifting perception. Well, at least it puts it at the centre of the frame, doesn't it? I mean, it, yeah. I mean, it does go back to that whole thing, the Robert Kennedy GDP, you know, it measures everything except that which makes life worthwhile. <laughs> of course, growth and GDP matter, but you do wonder why this also isn't at the centre of decision-making, and, and that's what New Zealand has done. And obviously there's lots to learn from around the world. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. If you've got thoughts about health inequalities and what you've heard on today's episode, or you've got ideas for future episodes, or you just want to tell us that you like our podcast, please do uh, email us. You can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. We love uh, to hear from you. We love all the emails, particularly the nice ones. Uh, This one comes from Chris Adams. Uh, It was actually on Twitter. He says, just listening to the latest episode, if Ed saw a stalk in the UK, he needs to call the RSPB, as they'll be very surprised and excited. If it wasn't a heron, I'm pretty sure it wasn't a heron, then it was probably an egray. It could have been a common crane, but that's unlikely. I sort of wish I'd taken a picture of it, although I would have had to have had a camera sort of about my person in the water, so that probably wouldn't have worked. But uh, listen, I've I've got a pencil here and some paper. Yeah. Maybe you could describe it, and I could do I just, you know like uh, the the police do with suspect drawings. Uh, I could do some kind of identity picture stalk. of this bird. Uh, yes, um, I'm now sort of doubting myself. It did not look like a heron. I think I might have to ask Dan the lifeguard. By the way, I think I'm going to buy Dan the lifeguard a zapper for Christmas. I, th- I think boundaries are important, Ed. Well, no, no, but Dan was saying to me the other day, I, I arrived, honestly, the zapper is catching on, Jeff. I said, well, what's the temperature, Dan? And he said, it said on the board, I think, 16. And he said, do you want to try the zapper? Oh, yeah. 
Yes. I, th- I think you're thinking about this. You know when you get like an old soak in a pub who convinces themselves that the person behind the bar is in love with them? He suggested the zapper. Okay. I was not being zapped forward. I was, you know, I was being... I just think he's being professionally courteous and, and you're about to uh, cross a line. What do you mean? What's the line? I don't think you can make the lifeguard to real life friend transition. I don't think it's going to happen for you. Are you sure? I think probably with lifeguards, it's quite common. Has he ever given you mouth to mouth? Is that what has forged this connection? No, he has not. Let's move on. Okay. Um, this, This comes from Paul Hickford on the subject of Germany at Eurovision, who says... Uh, just a quick thought, and this is because you had convinced yourself that 99 yes. red balloons, 9 and 19 yes. belong, was uh, was uh, a Eurovision entry. Paul says, just a quick thought, but is Ed confusing Naina, the singer of 99 <laughs> red balloons, with Lena, who sang Satellite uh, Eurovision in 2020 for, Ge- for I Germany? I think, to be honest, I think Paul is just like digging me out of a like massive cult- <laughs> cultural hole, really, isn't he? Uh, I mean, I think, yes. Yes, it was Lena, of course. Lena, not Lena. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Paul, for cur- for sort of reminding me. Uh, right, this one comes from Ian Coulter. It's subject give directly. I want to say that I'm really enjoying the podcast. Should we just stop there? That's that's nice. You've been fishing for that for a while, haven't you? Starting listening to help me through long nights when my daughter was born, and she's now almost twenty four. No, uh, and, she's, <laughs> and she's now and she's now almost three. To be so consistently interesting for this long is seriously impressive. I'm from Belfast, but live in Philadelphia, so it's one of the ways I feel very connected to what's going on back home. This is great. Mm. I had a suggestion. I was listening to the Would Be Rival podcast. This is po- oh come on, they're doing a different thing. They're doing current events. This is We're doing this is poli- big ideas. This is yeah. politics with them. Alistair Campbell and Roy Street. Uh, and they briefly mentioned. <laughs> And they briefly mentioned the Give Directly campaign where you charitably support an individual or family in need rather than giving to a larger organisation where the donation is spread across a wider area and the impact is perhaps less visible. They didn't go into any detail, but I thought I'd love to hear Jeff and Ed doing a deeper dive. Probably um, a good one for us to look into, isn't it? Definitely. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, we're in the outro. It's always bittersweet for me because I enjoy hearing you say that, but here we are at the end of another episode. Bit sad, isn't it? What have you been up to then? I um, I caught a ditto on Pokemon Go. I've become... You've quite become quite obsessed with it, haven't you? Yes, I'm trying to catch a Mew. I once in my 20s started playing Tetris a lot. Mm. And I then ended up having dreams about Tetris. That feels like a very good metaphor for uh, anxiety. Do you think? Just all this stuff falling towards you and you have to kind of arrange it into some kind of order. You'd be a very good therapist. I'm not so sure about that, but um, I wonder if a part of the reason I'm playing Pokemon Go is I want to appear a bit more of a, a kind of trendy dad to my son. Because I became a father in my 40s. I'm going to tell you something that he said to me two nights ago, verbatim. He said, can we play a game where you pretend to be a young dad? Oh, gosh. You know, my father was 46 when I was born, and I always remember in the school playground, other kids say, how old's your dad? And they'd say, 28. And I'd say, how old's your dad? 53. And they'd be like, 53? And I always felt incredibly sort of glum about it, actually. Yeah. Right, well, should we thank our guests? We should. It would be uh, be impolite not to. Thanks to Michael Marmot, Christina Gray and Chris Thomas. 
Emma Caution produces the audio for our podcast. Our content producer is Rachel Barmer. Oh, isn't Rachel Barmer How brilliant? How live without Rachel Where has Rachel Barmer, Barmer been all exactly. these months? Um, I mean, there's probably a long, <sighs> detailed answer to that. Ever since Rachel Barmer has arrived, our podcast is, like, souped up. And look what's happened to Rishi Sunak. Yes. She was at the Treasury. These things aren't coincidental. Uh, Rachel is supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our eye dents. Ed Seed composed the music. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. Don't forget to get your ticket to our live show at King's Place in London on the 17th of July. Just Google King's Place and you'll be able to uh, sort all that out through their website. He's been making Dishy Rishi mad. He's been pretending to be a young dad. (laughs) And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. (laughs) 